you have to love it. You have to understand that even when you're at the top of your game, then you're going to have years where you don't work as much and you have to be okay with just with who you are and not always looking outside of yourself for these parts or this fame or this money to fix you. here. Welcome back to the show. Today we are chatting with actor, director, producer Brianne Davis about her career in Hollywood, the mental health focused podcast Secret Life she hosts, and her recovery with sex and love addiction. But before we dive into today's episode, just a quick reminder to please subscribe to the show. Whether you are listening on iTunes, Spotify, Audible, Google Play, press that subscribe button so you can stay up to date on episodes. And head on over to patreon.com slash Xenia to join the fam and help keep this show going every single week and get access to exclusive content, behind the scenes content, and early access for my music and writing. Again, that's patreon.com slash X-E-N-J-A. Your support means the absolute world to me. Whether lighting up the big screen or calling the shots behind the scene, actor, director, producer, and writer, Brianne Davis, is one of the most electric talents to storm Hollywood by force. She recently wrapped two seasons as a series regular in History Channel 6, as well as a role in the upcoming season of Netflix's Lucifer. Originally from Atlanta, Brienne moved to Los Angeles to pursue her acting career. Her first lead role came in 2005 with the blockbuster hit Jarhead opposite Jake Gyllenhaal. Her credits include recurring roles on Hulu's Casual, TNT's Murder in the First, HBO's True Blood, as well as FX's Nip Tuck, NCIS Los Angeles, CBS's CSI Miami, ABC's Desperate Housewives, and HBO's True Blood. Not only an actor, Brienne is also an accomplished director and producer. Thriving behind the camera as much as in front, she has produced three films with her production company, Give and Take Productions. She has directed two features, The Night Visitor 2, Heather's Story, and Deadly Signal. Brienne has over a decade of recovery as a sex and love addict and currently hosts and produces the popular mental health podcast, Secret Life. Brianne is the creator of two female-driven TV series, Take Back the Night and Secret Life. She's currently pitching them to networks with her producing partner slash husband, Mark Gannat. She recently finished writing her first Romana Clef fiction novel, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict, released February 12th, 2021 for Valentine's Day weekend. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband, son Davis, and their dog, Bear. Hi, Brienne. Thank Hi. you so much for being here. Oh my God. That makes me sound so much cooler than I am. Like I don't, I am not that cool. I sound cool, but I'm not. You're very cool. I may or may not have Instagram stalked you. You're very yeah. cool. <laughs> I love a good Instagram stop. I'm not allowed to Instagram stop, but it used to be one of my favorite activities. I just get so triggered by stalking people. Mm-hmm. I hear that. I also low key want a dog named Bear. Like I, I want four animals, three dogs. I know what breeds I want and I have all their names picked out and the like gigantic bear dogs. His name's going to be Bear. 
Oh, I love that. Uh, he just actually passed. Our oh, pup no. just passed of 14 years. We had to put him oh. down. He got really, really sick. But yeah. that's really sweet. That makes me like happy that someone's going to like name a dog after him. You know, 100 percent. He'll live on. His spirit will live on. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so I like to start every episode with just how me and my guests have met. And this is the first time we're actually meeting, um, but we were connected through Tanya Newbold, who is one of the most amazing humans I've ever met. And I'm so grateful she connected us. Yeah, she's a great human. I just think when you find people that are that authentic and giving and supporting and, and such a good friend, it's just rare in this world these days. So I'm happy too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm new to California and LA and, and pursuing all of this too. So like to have mentors and role models like Tanya is really, really helpful. Shout out to Tanya. (laughs) So Brienne, can we start with just what brought you to Hollywood in the first place? You know, I think I was always looking for that, you know, to live in someone else's shoes, to be somebody else. Um, Even when I was young, I would act out scenes in my backyard to escape reality. So when I got my first part on Dawson's Creek when I was 17, and after doing that, I realized, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. I get to go on set and be put on a different costume and become a different person and have a different name and say different lines that I would never say before. And it's just, I just never wanted to go to college. I didn't believe you had to spend thousands and thousands of dollars and have loans to get an education, to be successful in this world, especially with a learning disability and having ADHD. So I just saved my money right after I got out of high school. I worked for, I think, eight months and then drove out to Hollywood, didn't know a single soul and just came out. That's so gutsy. I love that. (laughs) Well, it's like, I feel like there's always somebody guiding me, whatever it's like your spirits, your higher power, your universe. Now it's God. It wasn't God before, but yeah, I just like, I was always guided towards entertaining and all that. So yeah. What were your early days in Hollywood like? crazy. <laughs> well, the good thing is I was never in the party scene. I'm not a big drinker. I'm, I I don't do drugs. I don't like anything that has power and control over me, but it's still like, I just found myself floating like to different groups of friends, trying to find stability. It's really hard when you first move to Hollywood to find a stable group of friends that you can count on because it's such a a climate of selfishness, driven, always looking, compare and despair is what I like to call it, like one-upping. Because for a woman, you know, there's less roles than for men, you know, so it's a fight to get like the female roles. So I just felt at the early days, I was like, always like, (sighs) trying to just make it, you know, had a day job working at a hat store and going to auditions and like sweating in my car because my air conditioning broke. And I remember when I got Jarhead, which this story I love telling is I went, it was like an early audition at 9am. And I like went out to my car the night before I came from acting class at like 11 o'clock at night. And these people behind me were like honking at me and I parked my car and I like run into my little studio apartment, you know, turn on the air unit. Cause it was hot. And I come out the next morning to go to my audition for jarhead and all my tires are slashed. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. All of them. 
slashed. And I was thinking, what did I, what happened last night? Maybe I cut him off. I still don't know what happened. So I was like crying, like to my agent and calling a tow truck to come get my car to get new tires. And I didn't have any money. Like, like you're just trying to survive, you know? And I got to the audition and she's like, what happened to your car? The casting director, Deborah Zane. And she, I said, I got my tire. She's like, wait, wait, let's put this on tape. So I said, told the whole story. And that's what got me the call back to meet Sam Mendes. Oh my God. That wouldn't have happened. This horrible thing that, you know, and spending like, I can't remember. It was like $700 or something. I think I had to like put it on my mom's credit card because I didn't have a credit card and I had to pay her back. And it was like, if that didn't happen, I wouldn't have gotten to go into Sam Mendes, then tell him the story again. And then he hired me. I didn't even have to like audition for him. So sometimes the bad, the worst days can turn into the best days. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's too, that's like turning, turning it around yourself too. Cause like you, you could have not told the story to the casting director. Yeah. And I think just being authentic in yourself. I think I was just authentically like, I don't know what happened, you know, (laughs) but I think still being positive and not going into like, woe is me. You know, I was like, I got here. I'm here. I was like, (laughs) but so yeah, that was my intro to Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's a great story. Thanks. Can you talk a little bit about just like being an actor in Hollywood in general and like what what's the process from that first audition to landing a recurring role on a show oh man I mean I talk about this in the book a lot that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is to give people a real look into Hollywood as a working actor not as like the star not number one on the call sheet you know not J-Lo like I'm a working actor I go from job to job I make a living doing it, but I'm not like a, a no name, you know, people don't know my name. They're always like, I recognize you, but they can never place me. So, um, I would say like through the book, I really, I really talk about it. Cause it's the C list actress that's, you know, going to audition audition, but it's tough. I mean, the more work you get, the harder it gets. So say, uh, you go in for your first audition, you read with the casting director. It used to be producers that doesn't even happen anymore. Cause everything's cast so quickly and everybody's out of town. So you take self tape, you go in and talk to read for the casting director. Then, you know, you get a call back for the producers if they're there or you talk to them over Zoom. And then you have to to get like a starring part like I did for six. You have to go in and read for the studio. And then if you pass that test, you get to read for the network. And that's literally going into a stadium like room with 30 people that don't smile most of the time. And they're like this and they're waiting for you to perform. And you're like, hi, nice to meet you. Okay. I'm going to do my part. And you like do the scene. And then you're like, thank you. Nobody says anything. And then you walk out. Oh my God. And you sit in a room with the three other girls, two other girls, one other girl, whoever you're up against after you signed your contract for six years. So you sign your contract before you actually audition and test for the part. And you sit there with the other girls in this room nobody's talking to each other. You're all trying to pretend each other's not there. (laughs) Like I talk about this in the book, how awkward it is. And you know, they're usually your doppelgangers. So it's like people that resemble you. And then you wait and they come out and they tell you like, Oh, um, you can go home. We'd like you to stay. 
and the rest of you can go home. Oh my God. And you're like, okay. And you know, and, or sometimes they say, okay, thank you all. And you leave and you wait to get the call. Either you got it or you don't got it. And let's just say 99 times out of a hundred, you're not getting the part. And that's what life looks like. And you do that over and over and over again. And then you get the part and it's awesome. And you get to be working and then you get canceled or then you get replaced or then you get fired or they kill your character. So it's just constantly looking for a job. I would say <laughs> that's what an actor's job is. You're constantly looking for a job. Yeah. Well, Even how- the stars have to do that. They all compete against each other for the part. So, Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Tis the life, right? Tis the life, that's it. Constant rejection. Sign me up. (laughs) Sign me up a low self-esteem, low self-love, sex and love addict. Sign me up for this job. My therapist told me I picked the worst career for my addiction. Yeah, but like, you know what? We're still doing it, so it's okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And listen, you know, you have to love it. You have to understand that even when you're at the top of your game, then you're going to have years where you don't work as much and you have to be okay with just with who you are and not always looking outside of yourself for these parts or this fame or this money to fix you. Because as we've seen with tons of celebrities, they're miserable or they're addicts. They, they die from addiction. They're in recovery. They're jump around from relationship to relationship. So you have to have a lot of self-love in you to do this job or you will not survive. I'm on like the very, very beginning track of just Welcome. like career. Thank you. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's so hard. There's all the doubt. Oh my gosh. But I, like every day I'm like, I can't imagine doing anything else. Like I, I know I'm here. <laughs> and that's the thing. If I just had millions and millions of dollars, which I did not, I'm lower middle class in Georgia, like did not come from an entertainment family, did not come from people that are rich. Um, I, I wouldn't be doing anything else. I'd still be doing what I'm doing. So I think that is what it, 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 it's for the right reasons, not for this thing to like fix you. That message is hard to get away from though. I feel like I wrote an entire spoken word piece about it and how like, I feel like I've, I've been like, my identity is like in all the things that I'm creating. It's not, it can't be because if it's too fleeting because you're hot one minute and then you're not the next and you have to be okay with it. You have to be okay with, yes, I played this part in six. Yes, I was in Lucifer. Yes, I've directed these movies, but they cannot define me as a person because it will never give me the self-worth or the feeling of love that I want it to be. And I, And when I first started, one of the things I wish I would have told myself is, you cannot like each part cannot give you your self-worth. And I think I lean too hard on like, oh, oh, this makes me, this makes me somebody. And it's like, no, you're just a worker among workers doing this job. And tomorrow you'll be done with this job. And then you'll have to start all over again. Do you think that often social media and like fandoms can also play into like feeling like a character has to become your identity? Oh my God. To this day, I have Tom Felton fans like how was kissing Tom and murder in the first how was tell us was the choking thing real and the thing blah 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 and then I have fans like reach out and be like I hate you Tom is my husband I'm gonna marry him he doesn't even love you and I'm like I'm married and I have a kid and that was my job and then I have people reaching out to me like I hope you die like it's crazy people get so when I was on six and Lena Graves my character and her husband husband um that 
Barry Sloan plays uh, Joe. When they broke up, I got so much hate mail. And I was like, I am playing a character. This oh is my life. Like back off. <laughs> that's yeah. That's, that's like another level right there. It is. It is. People get really intense about other actors or parts you play and they think it's you. And then you're like, that is not me. I was just like, calm down. Yeah. So yeah. It happens. It happens. Can we chat about directing and producing? Directing is my, like, that's my number one passion with, I feel like with everything I'm doing right now, it's so that I can like create my own directing opportunities. That is the best thing ever. That's what I would say for younger people starting out, really look into like creating your own stuff, putting your, your vision out there, putting your voice out there, putting your experience out there, because I have to tell you as an actor, you do not have any power at all. Like whatsoever, even if you're on a series for two years, I had no power over my character. I had no say. And when I started directing, it was the best thing I've ever done because you understand every department, you understand lighting, you understand how to even like help other actors and it makes you a better actor also. And and it's so fun creating. It's so fun to like tell talk about the lighting with the, you know, it's just such, I love directing. When I'm directing, every part of my body is on fire. I feel like, I am like alive, like fully alive, because as a director, you have to know the full story. You have to know everybody's character, their journey. You have to be able to describe their journey. You have to say how you want the shot to look, what wardrobe they're wearing, how their makeup is done. And as an actor, you're just responsible for your character. So I just love directing too. And I love that you love directing. I love that. (laughs) My first directing experience, I was 17 and I was uh, training circus arts. And I randomly was just like, hey, can I direct the first night Boston's show this year? Which is apparently it's this huge thing. It's like the New Year's Eve celebration in Boston, like thousands upon thousands of people go. So my first ever, like, I did absolutely everything except like perform the other actors like acts for them. I was also in it too. <laughs> so that was like jumping into the deep end and learning how to swim but through like truly that I I did that three years in a row and I like I just fell in love with directing I was like this this is this is what I have to do yeah it's the best it honestly and so is producing and being producing behind it and being able to you know do the budget and where you put the money and what's at the craft service table and what's for lunch like all that stuff I love too because I want to take care of my crew I just love producing and directing if you're out there and you're new you do not need a big budget like just you have a camera on your phone get some friends start direct acting it's seriously that simple I think sometimes like People can feel like it's, you know, like so like you have to have the billion dollar budgets and, and you know, hundreds of people in, in the crew. And I'm kind of like, I do all my own photos with my iPod. <laughs> like, no, I mean, I mean, that's when it gets really complicated when you have hundreds of people and you have to rally everybody and get them to all do their jobs. And right now I would just take advantage of, you know, just not having all that pressure on you and just creating out of the sense of just creating art. Have you acted in something that you were also directing or producing? Yes. Yes. I acted in the night visitor too. I had just one scene because I was in, I was the lead in night visitor, the first one. And so there, and I remember that day they're like, 
Brianne, you have to go through makeup and hair right now. And I was like, I don't want to. They're like, no, you ha- your scene is next. I was like, I don't want to leave set. I don't want to go through wardrobe. I don't want to go through makeup. I'm not interested. Um, so I personally, when I'm directing, I just want to direct. There's something about the power of like, it doesn't matter what I look like or because it's such a, it's such a, you know, it's, it's me. I'm the, the product on screen. So I have to look as perfect. I have to look a certain way. I have to, you know, feel like the character and with directing, I just am like raw, don't care. And that's so powerful as a woman to be in that position and then producing. I don't mind acting if I'm producing it, but I love when I'm directing, I just don't want to go in front of the camera. Like I'm not interested. So psych, so psychophonia that's now called deadly signal that then was called psychophonia, but now it's called deadly signal again. I didn't want to do a part in it. I refuse. I was like, I am not interested. I just want to direct. How can the two be different and how can they be similar? Well, they're completely different because when you're acting, you're that character and you're not worried about the lighting or, or the other people and their direction. And, and when you're directing, that's what you're looking at. So it's very hard for me to have like a, an eye on myself and then to give myself direction. So the good thing is that Mark, my husband, who's also a director and producer and has done tons of stuff. I had him behind the camera when I had my scenes so he could give me direction. I'm, it's So it's like using two different parts of your brain. Have you found sometimes if you're, if you're acting in something that like your director brain will turn on, but like you can't use it because you're just the actor, not just, but your, your, your role as the actor. Yeah. And I also like, especially when I come on and I'm like watching how the crew is working and how the director and I'm like, but they need, she needs it. They need to say this. They need like that. Like, but I'm like, stay in your lane. You're just acting Just stay. You're going to go home right after this. You're not going to stay all day. Cause as a director, you're the first person there and you're the last person to leave. Cause you literally have your hands in everything. And as an actor, you know, you show up for your time, you get your hair, makeup done, you go to set, you do your job and then you go home when you're done. And that's like the big difference too. Yeah. Okay. Can we talk about being in recovery with sex and love addiction? Ooh, good times. (laughs) So fun. (laughs) We love addiction. (laughs) Addiction. Yes, please. I, I would love to discuss it. Yeah. So can we just start with what it's like to battle this type of addiction? It's gnarly. It's probably the hardest addiction to get over. They say, you know, AA is the last house on the block you want to go to. And they call SLAW, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. SLAW is like the shack in the back. Like nobody (laughs) wants to go to. It's like the worst place. So I tell newcomers when they walk in the room, like, if you're walking in this room, you're pretty much saying you have a problem because nobody wants to stick, come to this room. It's like the, the last place you want to be. I mean, we've had addicts, heroin addicts of 30 year recovered heroin addicts, you know, 50 years in AA come in and say, I did not want to come to this program because it's really hard. It's such a gray disease with alcohol or, you know, smoking or those, you just stop doing it. 
you, you know, but with sex and love addiction, you're addicted to people and you can't just become a hermit and not have people in your life. And it affects every relationship. It affects your relationship with your family. It affects relationships with your friends, colleagues, coworkers, lovers, whoever. So it's a really hard disease to get sobriety and people, a lot of people slip up. A lot of people leave the program you know, they say only five to 10% actually stick it out in the program. So I'm an old timer. I have 11 years of recovery, um, especially as a woman. It's really hard as a woman to find women with recovery. So I just really wanted to give a face and a voice that this disease is no joke. I've had a lot of friends die from it. I've had a lot of friends commit suicide. I have friends in jail right now for this disease. So I just want to like blow open the door and the stigma and the shame and say, Hey, there's nothing wrong with you. If you don't know how to have healthy relationships, if you don't know how to communicate, if you don't know how to connect intimacy and sex, if you don't know how to like be on the internet and not get triggered and be looking for your white knight or somebody to fix you or your soulmate, blah, 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 all that stuff that doesn't exist. Yeah. It's tough. It's a tough disease. It's really hard. And people don't like to talk about it at all. There's a lot, a lot of shame. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is. I feel like for me, I definitely am, am, am sort of addicted to like daydreaming and the fantasy and like my fantasy own mind. Addict. Oh yeah. <laughs> but it's, it is that thing where I, like, I'll, I've joked before when I've been talking about it. I'm like, I just need a new brain. No fantasy addiction is very bad. Last night, I just spoke at a fantasy meeting. That's really the love addict side where it's like Mm -hmm. you go into fantasy, you go into flirting and intriguing, you go into, you know, looking for this person or looking for this life, you know, just always wanting to fix you or give you your self-worth or going back to unavailable people or, you know, a lot of people, love addicts DM a lot of people, like they're always searching for this person. And, um, or cheating or all that stuff that goes with living in fantasy. I mean, that's what you're usually your first addiction is as a kid, as if a sex and love addict, if you trace it back to their youth, it's usually they had to go into fantasy to get out of living situations, parents that weren't available, you know, um, to not live in their reality, to survive their situation. So the first addiction is usually going into fantasy. And that's what I used to do. I used to just act out scenes in my mind and like, like just block out the world around me. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Same. I think too, I've I've realized that like the high of the chase is what is what matters, you know, it's not like it actually gets really boring when someone's like, Oh yeah, I'll save you. I'll be that person. And then I'm like, actually, no. (laughs) Well, first of all, no one can save you, but that's what a lot of people like for me, I was in love with falling in love. I love that high, like the, the drama of it, the first kiss, the first touch, you know, the back and forth, the push pull, all that excitement. I felt like relationships had to have passion and drama and, and like a fight between between them. And that's really unhealthy, very unhealthy to think that's what a relationship looks like. Because mm. what would happen is you get into a year with somebody and then reality hits. You really see the person for who they are because you before signed magical qualities to them or they signed them to you. And then they didn't live up to your expectation or you didn't live up to theirs. And then you have to start paying bills and picking up dog poop and deciding what to eat at night. And it just becomes that mundane, healthy relationship that I'm not excited to be in. Like that's not fun. And I loved like the secret, the dirty, the 
first and all that, the butterflies, all that is what I was addicted to. How did you realize that you had this addiction? Well, it just smacked me in the face. I mean, honestly, I was growing up, I, you know, always kind of overlapped boyfriends and I kept doing that into my twenties. And then I met this person I really liked as a person. And I found myself like, Ooh, if I wasn't with them, I'd want to be their best friend. So I thought it went away. And what happened was a mentor of mine died. And I found myself two days later working on location out of town on a movie and almost about to cheat once again and flirt and intrigue. And I remember looking at this person going, I don't even like this person. Like this person I'm working with, he's rude to waiters. And I talk about this a lot in the book and then, but I have this person at home that I care about as much as I can. And we're living together now. And I was about to blow up my life once again. And I was sitting in a dark hotel room in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I can't be looking outside myself for this perfect person. That's always going to like, give me that hit, that jolt, that energy. And then cheating on them or trying to find somebody else to flirt with. And I just called my friend. She sent me to her therapist and therapist said two things to me when I met her. She said, you wear the mask of one of my other clients. That's a high class prostitute. And I was like, Nothing wrong with paying for sex at all. But like, I was like, I've never had a one night stand. I haven't had much sexual partners. Like, what are you talking about? I've never been paid for sex. Like, and she said, you, there's, there's like a deadness to your intimacy. Like there's a part I can't penetrate. And then we kept talking. And the last thing she said is you're a sex and love addict. And I was like, Mm. what is that? Like, that's like a guy that cheats and gets caught and he's trying to make make an excuse. And she's like, no, the, a lot, it's a huge community. And, you know, this was like over a decade ago and she, we printed up the 40 questions and I went through the 40 questions. I'm not going to tell you my number because you have to read the book, <laughs> but it's a high number. And they say, if you get more than five yeses, then you might have a problem with this. And I got a lot of yeses and I drove home called my boyfriend on the car on the 101 stuck in traffic, bawling my eyes out, looking like a crazy person. I was like, I'm a sex and love addict. And I get home to our apartment and he prints up all the meetings and highlights all the meetings I can go to. Oh my God. And I found myself at a meeting that night, Wednesday night, 7.30 in the deep in the valley at a church in horrible fluorescent lit room with 30 other people that were nothing like me. It was like a a-list celebrity and a social worker and an elementary school teacher and a CEO. It was like every ethnicity, every walk of life. And they all were speaking and I started crying because I was like, oh my God, I'm not broken or alone. I'm not unable to be fully committed to some, like I didn't get the tools from my parents to have healthy relationships. Like there's nothing wrong with me because I just felt like, Am I just one of those people that just never wants to get married or fully commit and always like wanting to be the cool girl, like floating around this enigma? And yeah, that was the the end for me. Addiction can really make you feel alone. At least for me, I feel like I'm so unique and like no one could possibly understand. And it's, That's yeah, the it's, thing. it's very isolating. 
Yeah. You walk in though, and you realize you are not unique. You are not special. <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> you have the same problems as other people. And there is a way out of that darkness. And I think that's the first step. If you're struggling, like you are not alone, talk about it to somebody, reach out to somebody, because if you allow your brain, your addict brain to think you are alone or unique and special, it's just it's a spiral. It's a deadly spiral. That spiral is quick too. It's sneaky and it's quick. And it's cunning and baffling. I mean, it will come at you from all different sides. It will, I mean, you know, I had to give up Instagram for a while because it was coming around that then and the compare and despair and always looking outside of myself in the shiny, glossy life that I want my life to look like. And it's like, it did that. And then it came around through friends, how I use my girlfriends to fix me or make me feel better. And then it came around with my parents, like showing all the stuff that happened during my childhood. I mean, it is cunning and baffling. And it, it it's so tricky and it makes you think it's right. Of course it does. It's your attic brain is doing pushups over there yep. saying, oh no, you can take that flirty DM from that guy. Like there's nothing wrong with saying hi back. And then you find yourself just everything, just keep, keep going. Oh, I can just call my ex and wish him a happy birthday, even though it was a terrible relationship. <laughs> like it will literally twist and twist just for you not to put it down, whatever it is, eating, drinking, people, sex money, whatever. It's very, very cunning. Yeah. I heard this great quote one time <laughs> talking about like addiction and, and the darkness and everything. And, and it was like, if you don't pay attention to it, it doesn't go away. It just like lifts weights in the corner. And I was like, yes, it's doing push-ups. It's doing push-ups in the corner. Your character defects are doing push-ups in the corner and it will come at you from always, you know, that inner self-talk, jealousy, envy, you know, selfish thinking, self-centeredness, narcissism, ego, everything will just come at you from all different directions. That's why today, you know, 11 years in, I go to more meetings today than I did 11 years ago. I go to nine meetings a week. Wow. Yeah. I hit a meeting every morning. I'm, I speak this week. I'm speaking at four different meetings. You know, I sponsor four different women. Um, it's important because it, it literally, if I do not do this work, like maintenance, if I do not meditate, if I do not pray to a higher power, if I'm not honest and about my intentions, if I don't take responsibility when I've done wrong, I will find myself in a week starting to just spiral. It's that quick it will happen and i have to be diligent about my recovery so let's jump to the book okay yay i i did start reading it i'm in i'm, I'm early on it's so good oh my god it's so good oh god um, i love it what was one of the reasons to write it as a fiction novel? I love that. First of all, I never wanted to write a book. And I will just say that blatantly. My husband pressured me into it. <laughs> Which was just so if you're listening, I am married today. I have a kid. I did not want to get married. I did not want a kid. And here's the thing I just have to say before we go into the book. I am with the same man I was that highlighted those meetings. We have been together for 16 years. It's not like I got better in this program and then I found the most perfect partner because that doesn't exist. So I'm telling you, this book 
was like never supposed to see the light of day. I was never going to write it. I wasn't interested in telling anybody I was a sex and love addict. I was just of service in my community. And what happened is my husband, he was like, I feel like you should take this writing course. And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm, I have ADHD. I'm dyslexic. Like what? In God? Like I looked at him, like he was a crazy person. I was like, what are you talking about? And he kept mentioning it and kept mentioning it six times. And I'm like, Oh, fine. I'll take this writing course. Cause he's like, you can take it, not tell anybody. It's not that much money. It's 90 days. And I was like, okay, fine. Leave me alone. I took it. And the book literally wrote itself. The first draft was for, I wrote it in 45 days. Wow. And it just, it was like something bigger than me. And it yeah. was, you know, a memoir. It was about my life, but during the rewriting process, all these other memories memories from my people I've met over time, uh, dreams, you know, fantasies, all this stuff just started coming and it became this other thing. So it's like a, a memoir, a half memoir, a self-help and like a chiclet, like it's this weird combination. So I just made it a Roma Clef fiction because it is based on my life, but the main character is not me completely. So I say her name's Roxanne and I found, I couldn't, I kept writing about her and I'm like, who is this person that I'm writing about now? Cause it's not just me. And the song on Pandora came on from the police, you know, Roxanne, you don't have to put on the red light, you know, that song. And I was like, oh my God, it's Roxanne. So what I say is anybody can be Roxanne. Your mom can be Roxanne. You can be Roxanne, your cousin, your sister, your dad, your brother, anybody could be Roxanne. We all, we all use things outside of ourselves to make us feel better. So I just really wanted to write a book that was educational, that helped people understand the disease in a very easy way, because every other book that I read when I started was so clinical. It was so academic. I would read a page and it like, went in one ear and out the other. And I'd like throw the book against the wall. <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to take people on a ride and a journey and also educate about this deadly disease that nobody talks about. Yeah. It's like truth telling through fiction. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the beautiful thing. No one will ever know what story is mine and what is not mine. So I could tell all the worst of the worst and nobody will really know what's real and what's fake. So that was the best part. It allowed <laughs> me to just throw open the door. So all the shame and the shit and the terrible things I did and nobody knows if it's real or not. I love that. Um, okay, just for time's sake, can we jump to your podcast? Oh yeah, let's. Yay. So it's called Secret Life and it's mental health focused. Um, how long is, have you been hosting this one? I started hosting August, 2020. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Recently we, I woke up one morning at 3am again and I just had this thought like Secret Life, a podcast where people can tell me their secrets. Mm. They can come on anonymously. You know, I, most people are anonymous. We changed their name. And some people are really well known and it's people coming on, sharing their shame and secrets and letting go of the stigma, but it's really to help the listeners, the people that don't have a voice. And we've had on all walks of life, you know, from people that use abortion as birth control, suicide attempts, shooting themselves in a shotgun, sex and love addicts, sexual anorexics, men that have eating disorders, you know, women that steal from Jeff Bezos at Whole Foods. We have everything like this week's is about 
an, uh, sexually assaulted her OBGYN after she gave birth to her son. So we have on really dark, dark subject matters, but also light secrets too. So I try to just allow everyone to have a voice and to know they're not alone and you're not. So if you're out there, you are not alone. I've talked to every walk of life. We've recorded over 150 episodes. Um, so we have enough for two more years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so, so important to not feel alone. I feel like the pandemic and, and like lockdown and everything really kind of like exacerbated that. Yes. And it's, but then it also like the shift of things going online and like my, I have community now because of zoom. And and then my meetings kept getting bigger and bigger. And my husband is also in AA. He's 32 years sober. He's in DA 10 years sober in that program. And we just saw so many people struggling. And we said, you know, like we got to do this right now. We got to be of service. So we really made the podcast to be of service to other people. And because when I wrote my HuffPost article of coming out as a sex and love addict, it got 2 million hits that first month and everybody kept reaching out to me. And the last bit of shame just kind of lifted after I, even after a decade of recovery. And I was like, oh, I want people to experience this release like I have. Shame is such a bitch. Oh, it will eat you alive. And even if you think it's not, it's just festering inside of you. It really... When you have shame, when you don't deal with trauma, when you stuff things down, when you use all that isms to try to like feel better, it will eat you alive. I, I started to have, so I have existence shame and it, it started and like, like truly was like an actual thing by the time I was three. So it's like years and years wow. and years of just like no rhyme or reason, just existence shame. And now I'm looking at it and I'm like, it, it makes me so sad. <laughs> like, I know, but yeah. because you are, you should not just existing in this world. That's enough that your worth is you are here on this planet for a reason. You are worthy you. And it's like, when we attach all this negativity to it, it just, it, it can really eat someone out, eat someone up being of service to like people who really need it. Like that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast too, is because like we rarely hear the behind the scenes of, of things that are created and like hear people's stories of how they got there. And for me, just starting out, I'm like, well, I want to hear this. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, because we never hear that because people act like you walk down the street and you're going to be like a star or going to be, it's like, it does not work that way. That's like, not even 1% of people make it like that. It really helps to see like someone else's journey. So you know that you'll have your own journey. It will look different, but it won't, you know, it's not this unrealistic expectations of what, whatever it is you want to do looks like. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, okay. So final five is uh, technically speed round, but it rarely is speed round. So okay. it's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, what's been your favorite role thus far? Okay. So I really love Lucifer detective dancer. She was like four characters in one. So that is, was awesome to play. And uh, yeah, she was just a nutball and I love nutballs. <laughs> yes. I'm going to have to watch that. It's on Netflix, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. What is one piece of advice you have for a young actor in Hollywood? I think create your own, your own, you know, art. I think putting yourself out there, not waiting for someone to give you a yes, because it would rarely happen. So just keep, create, 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 just create. 
what's one piece of advice you have for someone struggling with a sex and love addiction? Put down the bottle, put down the person. If someone's creating drama in your life, that's a clear sign that it's not right for you. And if that doesn't help, please go fill out the 40 questions of Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. It's self-diagnosed. So type in SLA 40 questions self-diagnosed and it will come up and answer them as truthfully as possible. I will also put that link in our show notes so you can go there and click on it. Um, (laughs) Question four, what's your favorite self-care practice? I think praying to something bigger than me and knowing that I am just just a tiny little worker among workers on this planet. I'm no not unique or special that I'm here to be of service and do a job. So praying every night and writing down three things I'm grateful for, no matter if it's just like your comfy sheets, it, it that just really, you know, having gratitude for your life because you're alive right now and not many people can say that. What is the best and worst advice you were given? Oh, oh, I hate when it says assume the position. If you know, like if you're feeling insecure, not to say you're feeling insecure, just like act like Mm. you know what you're doing. And I feel like I did that so much that I lost touch with my authenticity and my true feelings instead of going, I'm really nervous right now, or I'm really scared. And I think when you shut off those emotions and just try to like, force like you're perfect or you're doing okay that I that would be the worst advice I would give somebody and then the best advice um I think the best advice is just being your authentic self because you no one can take that away from you yeah we're all snowflakes exactly (laughs) nobody else is like us that's that's something that like and and um that we're all made of stardust. Those are the two things that I hold on to. I'm like, yes. And I think the other piece of advice I have to say, because this one meant meant a lot, what's supposed to be yours is supposed to be yours. Mm. Or look and be like, oh, I didn't get that part or, oh, I didn't get that person or, oh, I didn't get blah, 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 fill in the blank. What's supposed to be yours will be yours. And, And later in life, you'll understand. So if I didn't get something in a year or two, I usually look back and go, oh, that's why I didn't get it. Oh, that's why that person's not in my life. So just that was a great piece of advice I got from my sponsor. Yeah, I like that. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for chatting with us and being here. So good. Um, Family, check out Brianne's podcast, Secret Life, and her new book, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. You can find her on Instagram and TikTok. The links are in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have enjoyed your time today. Please take a minute to press that subscribe button on iTunes, Spotify, Audible, Google Play. And if you liked today's episode, please rate and leave a review. It would mean so much to me and it helps more listeners like you find this podcast. You can connect with our guests and myself on social media. All of our information and more is listed in the description of this episode. I'm your host, Senya. See you next time.